Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, when is a decent railway service due to arrive? As we're recording this, members of the RMT union have brought trains to a virtual standstill in many parts of the UK. But even without that, few people would deny that the network is in a mess. In the last quarter, figures from the Office of Rail and Road showed that one in three trains arrived late for 10 different rail operators. Avanti West Coast and Cross Country both failed to get their passengers to their destination on time, even half the time. Avanti was given a £725 million taxpayer bailout to get it through the pandemic and paid shareholders £11.5 million in dividends in their last accounts. We're going to hear in a moment from Tom Haynes Doran, who's the author of Derailed, How to Fix Britain's Broken Railways. First, though, a word from Kyle. Hello there, listener. This is Kyle Taylor, the author of Byline Book's newest release, The Little Black Book of Lying Boris Johnson, the second in the Little Black Book series. Since the start of his career, Boris Johnson has been a proven liar. The Little Black Book of Lying Boris Johnson reflects on the decades-long history of deceit that has paved Johnson's path through the media to City Hall and eventually to 10 Downing Street. It shows how seemingly small, insignificant lies have been used to numb a nation to the truth, while also corrupting the very idea of decency in British politics. This time, we've got an amazing forward from Don Butler, a Labour MP ejected from the House of Commons chamber for calling out Johnson's lies, and an afterword by Peter Stefanovich, who's been documenting Johnson's lies on social media to an audience of millions. The Little Black Book of Lying Boris Johnson is a frank and uncompromising biography of the man who wanted to be world king. The story about our former prime minister who wants back into number 10, making sure that Boris Johnson doesn't rewrite his own history. You can get your copy now at littleblackborisbook.com. That's littleblackborisbook.com. That's Kyle. Let's speak now to Tom Haynes Doran, the author of Derailed, How to Fix Britain's Broken Railways. How are you doing, Tom? You're right. I'm okay. Thank you. Yourself? I'm good. And Tom, I suppose the logical place to start this discussion, if we're trying to capture a vision of how the railways could look in this country beyond the current industrial skirmishes, the place to start surely is with rail privatisation. Remind us what that was all about and why, in the eyes of many commentators, it's been a horrible botched job. Yeah, it's an interesting story, or at least I think so. The privatisation of the railways came after a wave of privatisation of formerly public sector utilities, the gas system, electricity, telecoms. It was very much sort of influenced by what was thought by the John Major government at the time for those things to have been a success in different ways. One of the important ways, of course, and ones that's not really talked about much, is that those privatisations raised a lot of money for the government. This is a Thatcherite government, John Major carrying on that economic tradition and viewpoint. Thought of privatisation as a good thing, the government should get out of the way when it comes to providing services. 
and the private sector is much better and more efficient at doing so. The key difference with a lot of those sectors was that the railways historically, for many decades at least, have been reliant on state subsidy to keep running. And that caused some problems with the design of privatising the railways because it wasn't simply a case of selling them off. If they'd done that, then very quickly the system would have collapsed. But a mishmash of trying to sort of get competition going, get in private financial investment, but also having through gritted teeth to continue to subsidise the railways. The problem with that being it is a loss-making industry. If you introduce private financial investment, it's going to expect a return on that investment. And that can only come from the fares that passengers pay or the subsidy that the government provides. And it's more expensive, of course, as a way to invest in the infrastructure and the services than if the government borrowed the money itself. So the net result was increasing fares by around 40% in real terms since privatisation. A massive increase in state subsidy. So subsidy was under BR around two or three billion pounds a year in today's prices. And that shot up to about 12 billion, so around a five times increase in subsidy. So we've paid for it in terms of higher fares and the more tax that comes out of our wages having to go onto the railways and a lot of that money being siphoned off by shareholders and by the providers of private bonds and that kind of thing. One of the key problems with the privatisation of the railways was that the tracks on which the trains run is owned by a different organisation than the company that actually run the trains, isn't it? We had, I think, Rail Track, it was called, which was a private company. Now we have Network Rail, which is state-owned, but still that's a separate organisation and a separate Mm -hmm. business from the companies running the trains on the tracks. Yeah, what many passengers may not know unless they've read into these issues is that, say, you mentioned Avanti earlier, so that's a good example. Avanti is a train operating company, different train operating companies in different parts of the country. And they may assume that that company is the manager of the entire service, if you like. But actually, Avanti have to pay for access to the network and they pay network rail for that. But they also don't own the trains either. They have to pay uh, rolling stock companies and lease them. And that was the system set up by privatization. So the train operating companies don't actually own hardly anything. All they do is employ staff for a certain amount of time, at least until their contracts finish. The idea behind that was that as they did these privatizations of other industries, they started to build up scholarly literature and, and think pieces about this theory of privatization, how you create competition. And with the railways, they decided that the infrastructure was what's called a natural monopoly. So it doesn't make sense to replicate the infrastructure. It doesn't make sense to have competition in the infrastructure. And that's to do with the sheer amount of cost, how long it lasts, but also spatial limitation. You wouldn't have five train companies running on a line and they each have their own track. It just doesn't make any sense from a practical perspective. So their solution to that was what they called simulated competitions. They got in a rail regulator and that was supposed to set the charges as if there was a parallel infrastructure, as if there was competition. And so they started building these mad economic models on the sort of false assumption that there was a parallel infrastructure. 
you, you can imagine how much work this created for consultants, economists, and that kind of thing. And then for the train operating companies, they had something more like the sort of competition you'd expect in a normal market. This was based on franchises. So private companies would compete for the right to run services on a particular route, more or less the system we still have today. And the official line on that was that that would drive down costs. I mean, this is the original sort of idea behind privatization was that it would reduce state subsidy, even though it's increased it by five times. They weren't happy with the relatively low amount of states we had to pay into the railways. Uh, How would they reduce costs? Well, like I say, they don't own the infrastructure. The only thing they really sort of own, if you like, is the staff. And really, that competition to run services was competition to run those services as cheaply as possible to reduce subsidy. How to do that? Well, if you only really sort of have staff as a cost, that means attacking the workforce. So this sort of conflict between the staff and the train operating companies was baked in from the start of privatization. And as I argue in my book, one of the main reasons that it went ahead. And we have this situation now then, which effectively is a version of that privatization that you have described, where we still have to make massive subsidies to the rail network and increasing subsidies is my understanding to the rail network but private companies are still able to make profit i mentioned the 11 and a half million pounds in dividends paid to shareholders of avanti despite their generally appalling performance mm. it seems to me to be a classic case of the rewards go to private companies go to shareholders But the risk and the burden of risk is borne by the taxpayer, as demonstrated by that £725 million subsidy to Avanti during the pandemic. We're caught always, aren't we? Because we have to bail them out when they're struggling because we need a railway service. At the same time, when they do make money and the subsidies help them make money, that profit doesn't go into cheap affairs. It goes into lining the pockets of the people who run the companies and the the fortunate few who who own shares in the company. Yeah, when they post a profit, which, like you say, they they generally have done over the pandemic, despite the huge decrease in income for the railways, that profit isn't sort of based on the fact that the operations are profitable. It's based on a very tightly defined contracts and a relationship with government which almost guarantees that they do make profit. So that profit is always despite the fact that the railways are losing money. And like I mentioned, the railways are unprofitable, but it shouldn't be surprising really because the road network isn't profitable either, which is the nearest comparator. The health service isn't profitable. These foundational industries generally aren't and do require a state subsidy. But you might think, well, why the hell has the government messed around with having private companies in the system when it really must know by now, probably knew 15 years ago, that it actually costs them more money. And that's to do with long-term and short-term thinking. So the idea, for example, with Network Rail, which replaced RailTrack after it gave too much money to its shareholders that didn't spend enough money on keeping the track safe. And And let me just remind listeners there, and this may be news to some younger listeners, Tom, uh, RailTrack was the company that controlled and maintained the track there were two rail 
accidents in this country, one in 1997 in Southall, the other one in 1999, in which a number of people lost their lives. And it was discovered that a, a signalling system that might have prevented both those crashes had been rejected. The ATP signalling system had been rejected on cost ground. So there was evidence that cost-cutting the desire to make profit was being put ahead of safety and that's why that private company was taken back into public ownership as network rail yeah so they brought in a private company to run the infrastructure that was shareholder owned and like you say there were problems with maintaining the signaling equipment and that contributed to crashes but the main one was the hatfield crash in 2000 and that was the result of a broken rail. I mean, can you imagine being an infrastructure company on the railways? And the result of your work is that rails are broken. Not only was a broken rail, which led to the deaths of many people, but also they hadn't been keeping tabs on, on the infrastructure properly. So they didn't know where any other broken rails might be on the system. So for a few months, they had to slow down all the trains on the system to about 20 miles an hour. Well, they went around trying to check the actual quality of the infrastructure. And of course, all of that led to a massive drop in income for the railways. And what became very clear was that they would never find enough money to actually pay to not just fix the immediate damage, but fix the neglect that had been visited upon the infrastructure over the past several years. So Tony Blair's government brought in Network Rail. They had a choice, really. They could have easily renationalized the infrastructure, would have made a lot of sense. But instead, what they did was create this strange company which didn't have any shareholders, but was allowed to borrow private finance on international markets. Some people will remember, some people won't, that the Chancellor of the Exchequer at the time, Gordon Brown, had these what he called fiscal rules that limited government borrowing. So it was really attractive to him and the Treasury, this system, because it meant that Network Rail could borrow huge amounts of money to restore the infrastructure, but that money wouldn't be counted on the government's balance sheet. So that's an example of why governments use privatisation. It's to get round their own physical rules, and it's to effectively sort of do an accounting trick what they see as free or cheap money. But the long-term consequences, of course, are dire because, as I mentioned before, it costs more money to borrow from private finance than it does the government to do that. And in 2014, the European Union changed their accounting rules and said to the government, you've got to renationalize this debt. And by that time, that was £34 billion. Um, to put that into perspective for your listeners, that's around half of the black hole in Liz Truss's budget that brought her down as prime minister. But it wasn't really discussed much. And of course, 2014 was the era of austerity, George Osborne and Cameron bearing down on government borrowing. So the last thing they needed or wanted was this debt putting on the government balance sheet. And since then, the borrowing that Network Rail was undertaking is now been instead converted into loans from the government. So effectively, it's one part of the government giving money to another. But that's now direct subsidy. And the result of that is this massive financial crisis on the railways, which is behind a lot of the service cuts that we see today, but also this massive war with the rail unions that we can all see. And as you say, then, the rail companies, they don't own the track. They generally don't own their own carriages. Those are 
least from other companies what are they you know they're a wrapper they're a name aren't they mm. within which sits a train service but the only areas then you're arguing that they can seek to cut costs is that of the workforce and this brings mm. us directly really i suppose to this dispute although of course there is a suggestion that the government is stymieing a resolution to the dispute that the train operating companies themselves would mm. like to settle the dispute but they're being yeah. prevented by ministers perhaps for political reasons yeah i think that's probably right the resolution to this it's one of those classic disputes where one side has to give up a hell of a lot at this stage, at least, if they want to see a resolution. I mentioned the financial crisis of the railways, the amount of subsidy that's now required. The government's trying to cut that desperately. It doesn't seem to have a plan for the railways other than to cut subsidy. The biggest cost, aside from the infrastructure itself, which you can't do much about, is the staffing costs, which haven't necessarily increased in recent years. They've been relatively stable. Aside from the fact that there have been more staff employed since privatisation, because we have seen an increase in services and an increase in passengers using those services. But I can imagine the private train operating companies, that they're not especially interested in having a strike. If they're international private transport companies, such as First, National Express and companies like that, doesn't do their reputation the world of good to have such terrible services running. And they know that every day that there's a strike, they get compensated. The government's giving them a direct increase in subsidy to make up for lost income every day there's a strike. So despite the fact that the system was set up so that these companies would compete on the basis that they could drive down wages and attack unions as best as possible, which, by the way, these companies were very successful at in the bus industry because that was privatized before. It doesn't really work like that because, like you say, really, it's just a sort of financial shell and a financial mechanism for taking 2% of profit out of the passenger operations every year. There's not a lot more to it than that. The staff are more or less permanent. The people working on Avanti now are the same people that were working on Virgin, more or less. The same infrastructure and the same rolling stock. It's just which particular financial interest gets to extract money at this particular point in time. So the government's got this problem where it sort of wants these private companies to be fighting its war on its behalf. But it isn't really set up in a way to do that. So it's sort of surprising that they don't take more responsibility for the strikes and do more direct negotiations. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. But my suspicion actually is that part of that reason is that they don't want to be seen to have too much direct control over the private companies, because that might force a change in the accounting rules to put, for example, the pensions deficit, which the train operating companies are running, would that then be added to the government's balance sheet that would make our national finances look even worse? There's a lot of stuff going on there about how accounting works and the priorities of the Treasury in this that almost never gets talked about in the media. Before we move on to thinking of the future of the railways, Tom, I just want to sum up how I understand your argument. You're describing an innately dysfunctional railway system, one that was founded in ideology 
partly the belief that if something is done by a private company, it will be done more cheaply and more efficiently than if it's done as a public service. It was also created in the way that it has been created to get round borrowing rules, which makes the government look more economically competent. And now we're locked into a world perhaps of further political decision-making in that no government or certainly no Conservative government wants to go back to nationalising the railways because it will be an admission of defeat. So you've got those factors all at play, as you've described them. You've also got ever-growing subsidies and ever-higher fares for passengers and a system in which worker is pitted against rail operator. It does sound like a recipe for chaos, which is what we've got at the moment. Yeah, and I think, in my view, it's a well-known fact that most people want the railways renationalized, including people who generally vote Conservative. I think people get a decent sense of what's happening. They generally understand that privatisation hasn't worked, that private companies have done well out of it, and that seems unfair. And the railway workers seem to be put upon at the moment and are fighting a war of survival in some ways. I think that's what most people understand the situation to be, and that's correct. I guess in my book, what I want to do is move the conversation forward a bit, though. So for me, it's not just a question of renationalizing the railways, but trying to understand what we want the railways to do as a public service. What are the challenges that we face as a society and what part could the railways play in that? And I think answering those questions allows you to go back to the issue of costs and finance and to be clearer about why, for example, we need to cut fares, why it's sensible for the government to subsidise that cut in fares, why we need to pay railway workers properly, why we need to spend more money on the railways than we're doing at the moment, despite the fact that the public spending on the railways is probably an historic high, certainly since privatisation. I feel that if we're campaigning for a better railway system, we need answers to these questions. So how do you envisage the railways looking like then in 10, 15, 20 years' time? If I said to you, Tom, redraw the railways. I don't know if we're ever going to get Great British Railways, which is the new organisation that Boris Johnson once promised for trains. But how do we make this fit for the 21st century? Starting point is the railways have been here a long time. The first intercity railways around the 1830s, so nearly 200 years now. A lot of the infrastructure is already in place. It's there. And in a lot of places, it's quite hard to sort of change it that much because stuff has been built around it. And we benefit from a lot of the investment that was made a long time ago. So there's some initial practical concerns that we need to bear in mind. But going back to my question of sort of what do we want them to do? And I think we need to start with what are our priorities and what are the challenges that our society faces? We face, obviously, a climate emergency that all the science is telling us we have to deal with immediately and will involve changing in our society in a speed and scale that's never been seen before. The other is this inequality and cost of living crisis, the sixth richest country in the world, and we've got people going to food banks and most people really struggling to survive. So there's a lot of things we need to do to fix those issues. What can the railways do? 
I think we need to start putting them together. So if you put those two concerns together, you're talking about something called a just transition. So that's to ensure that as we transition to a decarbonized economy, we're actually making those inequalities better, not worse. And there's two major things that we have to consider. One is how much carbon can we still burn and have any chance of survival? In what period do we have to cut that by? And the other is all of the social impacts of doing that, how that's measured. Unfortunately, it's too late to see massive infrastructure and technological investment in the railways as a solution to those problems. It's such a shame because if we'd started this 15 or 20 years ago, they would have been, but that's not an option anymore. The IPCC is very clear that we have to cut most of our emissions in the next decade. So building lots of lines to replace, for example, plane and car journeys isn't an option. We can do that anyway, but the problem is in building those lines, we're going to be using a lot of carbon. Concrete is incredibly carbon intensive. So any building that we do that isn't going to help us with the climate emergency is also going to make that emergency worse. You're arguing for using the infrastructure that we've got and maybe using a different kind of balance sheet then, perhaps accepting that we're going to have to subsidise the railways much more intensively than we have ever done, making fares cheaper so that the railways are available to all, and also, by the sounds of it, dramatically driving up the usage of the railways to ensure that fewer people are are making car journeys. Yeah. So how do you use the existing infrastructure better? Well, first of all, let's get rid of first class. It's not used very well. And actually, the evidence I've seen doesn't actually bring in any money. It's only maintained for mostly ideological reasons. If you look at Avanti train, I think there's three first class carriages, declassify them, putting in more dense seating. You can also use some of that space for bike storage, children's play areas. We need to humanise railways and and make sure that it's accessible to different types of people, families being a big one, of course. We need to cut fares drastically. So my suggestion on fares is that we need to regulate fares so that you never pay more than half the cost that you would pay if you were driving that journey. We need to understand the different forms of transport have different levels of efficiency when it comes to society and the environment. And public transport is far, far more efficient in those terms than private transport. And the costs of using those things need to reflect that. But we also need to think about demand. So I keep getting asked in interviews, if the RMT keeps striking, doesn't that mean people will be put off the railways? And doesn't that mean the income will go down? There'll be less money to pay the railway workers isn't it self-defeating and i always come back to this point of do you really think that most people traveling are doing that by choice so it's around that choice that i think we need to be more interested in why are people traveling so much and are those journeys really necessary because i think i would expect that most people traveling most of the time would rather not be traveling and how do we build on working from home how do we support people how do we create for example, community hubs where people can work locally, remotely. And how does that then free up space and capacity on the existing railway network and other forms of transport for people that don't have a choice because they have to go to where they're going to work? Those are just some of my suggestions. Fascinating stuff. That's Tom Haynes-Doran. Tom is the author of Derailed, 
how to fix Britain's broken railways. Available now from all good booksellers. I'm really interested to know what you think about what Tom has said as well. By all means, drop us an email to goldbergradio at gmail.com. Before we go, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That's our brilliant monthly newspaper, and it features content you can't read anywhere else. There is no millionaire backer behind the Byline Times, no corporation supporting us. We rely on ordinary readers and listeners like you to support our fearless, independent journalism. Get full details on how to subscribe over at our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. It is nearly Christmas, so I'm on a bound to remind you that it would make an amazing gift for someone to take out a Byline Times subscription and subs cost from as little as £3 a month. Head over to bylinetimes.com to find out more about subscriptions. I'm Adrian Goldberg. My thanks to Harvey White, who's helped out with the production of this episode. We'll see you again very soon. But for now, thank you and goodbye. Cheers. <laughs>